Redefined is hosted by me, Zainab Salbi, and brought to you by Find Center, a search engine for your soul. Part library, part temple, Find Center presents a world of wisdom, organized. Check it out today at www.findcenter.com and please subscribe to Redefined for free on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. What's most important about life? What is the essence of life? Is it what we do? How much we earn? How many social media followers we have? Or is it, do we live our lives in kindness to ourselves and to others? Do we live our lives in love to ourselves and to others? In nearly losing my life, I was confronted with these questions, and it led me to the conversations that make up Redefined about how we draw our inner maps and the pursuit of meaningful personal change. My guest this time is author, president, and CEO of Virgin Unite, Jean Alwang. Jean's new book, Partnering, Forges the Deep Connections That Make Great Things Happen, takes an intimate look at legendary partnerships and relationships and reveals how finding the right collaborator can create major results in our lives and in the world. In interviewing 65 prominent pairs like Ben and Jerry, Leah and Archbishop Desmond Tutu, and Rosalind and President Jimmy Carter, Jean has beautifully identified six principles that make partnerships flourish. And in the 15 year long process, with the wisdom she's gained, she's also changed her own life. Coming up, Jean and I discuss how partnerships can be grown to leave a maximum impact how to navigate through difficult times as a duo, and how building trust and open-heartedness can make relationships soar. Please join me. Well, let me start by saying we recently met again at South by Southwest uh, gathering, and I attended your book event there, and I was really, really touched by it. And I really enjoyed your conversation, but what really, really stayed is the first question that you ask everyone. So I'm going to ask you, what was that question? If you can repeat it and share it with us. Yeah. And firstly, just thank you, Zainab, for having me on. Such a big honor to be with you today. And it was great to see the work you're doing now with Daughters of Earth last week. Just incredible. And the question I always ask everyone is the one that I deeply love, which is actually a Mr. Rogers question, which is who has loved you into being? And I ask that question because I think we very rarely pause to think about the relationships and the partnerships that have helped make us who we are in this world. You know, when you did that exercise, I, you know, who has loved you into being, I, it it was a really interesting discussion because I went to my mother and and then people start discussing like you know who did you go did you go to one person several people all of that i'm curious about your answer yeah i i think that it changes it's evolved in my life to be honest the answer to that question and i think it will continue to evolve i think when i ask myself that question right now it's probably my husband uh, and the reason that this book is in the world is in large part due to him and the relationship and the partnership that we've built together over the years. Um, so, and I, I think the other person that probably comes to mind is my father. You know, my father had deep belief in me and that I could do anything in the world. And he was such an important partnership uh, to me in my life and helping me put myself on, on a path of looking at how I could have impact in the world. Beautiful. How has your husband impacted the book? I mean, he's an award-winning uh, Paralympian. He's an amazing guy. But I'm curious about how did that happen? And what was the question that you're after to ask in the book? Yeah, so I guess stepping back a little bit, um, because I think I wouldn't be with my husband right now if it hadn't been through the process of interviewing these extraordinary partnerships over the last 15 years. And the question, I, there's two questions I asked myself when I started this book. Uh, one was, how do you build those deep connections in your life that are going to help you make the best version of yourself? And the second was, how do you then use them to scale collaborative efforts? And for me, when I started this journey, I think 
like many of us, we had, I had been so pushed towards this kind of hyper-individualistic world um, and looking at goals and relationships and partnerships being more transactional. And when I started this process, um, I started to realize how these people that had been able to build meaningful lives and have outsized legacies of impact had built these deep connections at the center. And kind of in parallel with that, some 10 years ago now, I met my husband. And I think if I hadn't been going through this process about learning how to build deep connections, I wouldn't have been as open-hearted to the relationship in the first instance. I also probably would have been looking for different things in partners. And you know, this process has taught me to look for a person that has a similar set of values or what I call virtues as an ecosystem, has a vision to do something bigger in the world than themselves or their partnership. And so I think just identifying Chris in the first instance, this book has made a massive difference. And along the way, you know, he's helped me learn how to model what we call the six degrees of connection. So he's helped me practice those in our relationship, whether that's about learning how to celebrate friction, whether it's learning how to live those virtues every day. And Chris has been really a rock for me across these 10 years in helping me learn and understand. That's beautiful. So can you spell out what are these six degrees of connections to harness relationships? Or can you yeah. share it with us rather? Absolutely. And I should say right up front that this is not my wisdom. It's the wisdom of these extraordinary, I interviewed 65 partnerships of all kinds, friends, uh, romantic, family members, business members. And the, what was beautiful is I started to interview them more and more, these extraordinary patterns started to emerge. And I literally started to plaster the walls of our house with these patterns and then started to code the wisdom in the thousands of pages of transcripts. And what came out was these six degrees. And starting with, it was really interesting because I interviewed these people because I knew they had two things, longevity of partnership, and they'd made a larger impact because of their partnership. But what I didn't expect, Zainab, is how much what they called something bigger would dominate. And that all of these partnerships had something bigger, whether it was an individual purpose or whether it was a shared purpose, that really lifted them above the partnership when there was any difficulty or any, they helped, it helped them flow above that. Um, the second degree was called all in. And that's that ability to give 100% of yourself, to know that you're going to be there forever to have each other's backs. And it's not losing yourself in the partnership, it's actually finding yourself in the partnership. And then the third degree is this, what I love is this ecosystem of virtues. And there's six beautiful virtues that aren't just something that you plaster on the wall, but something that you live by every single day. And the fourth one is magnetic moments, how you stay connected. And there's a whole host of those. The fifth one, which is really important, is how you celebrate friction. So how you stay above the drama in a relationship. And then the last one is collective connections. How do you take these deep connections like the group did, the community did when they protected the ozone hole or ended apartheid or ended smallpox in India, is you bring these deep connections together to do something much, much bigger in the world. I mean, I really find it very, very helpful. And I'm like, it's making me reflect about all these learnings. And I want to go deeper in some of them, right? So I, and just for the audience, you've interviewed an amazing group of people, you know, from Desmond Tutu to President uh, Jimmy Carter, to amazing leaders in different sectors, business, politics, uh, economy, you know, social change, all of that. And the ones that stuck with me, you know, and I like I, I first want to go to the romantic ones, right? What, what you've learned from the romantic relationship. I love the story about President Carter and his wife, Rosalind Carter, and how they have dealt with fiction in their romantic relationship. So perhaps can you can you share us what's this, share with us what's the story, but also what is the lesson of the story and how can we all incorporate that? Yeah, and um, President and Rosalind Carter were just extraordinary and how honest they were. And they talked about how, you know, every day they don't go, they don't go by a day without having some kind of friction, but they always make sure they resolve it before they go to bed. And they talked about this extraordinary story when he left the White House and they were home together 
alone for the first time in ages. And so they decided they were going to ironically write this book together, the rest of our lives together. And so they started writing and they started to argue about historic events. They couldn't agree on what happened in the past. And they got so angry with each other that they couldn't talk to each other anymore. And it was long, long before the internet. So they had basically a computer that sat on their kitchen table and each one of them would sneak in the kitchen, write each other a message, leave. The other one would come read it, write the other one a message, leave again. And they went through this process for weeks. And it was really interesting in the interview because they never said the word divorce, but they kept on saying it almost broke our relationship. And they decided in the end to bring in a third party and they brought in their editor and the editor worked with them to come up with a third way solution. So you can still buy that book on the shelf today. And what he did is he put Jimmy's paragraphs in there with a J next to it and Rosalind's paragraphs in there with an R next to it. So both historic facts are currently in the book and this brought them back together again. And you know, the lesson that, that I learned from that and that they were really clear on is don't be frightened to go get a third party external help if your relationship needs that. And, you know, Bert and John, who started Life is Good, called it, you can't see the label from inside the jar. So don't be frightened to go out and have someone help you see that label, see what's happening in your partnership and help you get through it. And that was a common theme. You know, I think I always thought that when you find the right person, it's all roses and heaven. And it, it's not, it's hard work. And every single one of these 65 partnerships shared that it was hard work but they also felt it was the most important thing that they'd ever done in their lives. Beautiful, beautiful. Another example you use is of uh, Ben and Jerry. And I I really like that example because it has a veto rules, veto power rules. So I'm very curious about what does that mean? How does that apply in business relationship or in romantic relationship for that matter as well? Yeah, and Ben and Jerry were just the most delightful friendship. And they, I think I laughed for two hours during their interview. And they talked a lot about how the friendship was the most important thing in their partnership. It was the highest value. And so when we were talking about how they got through moments of friction or how they turned friction into something that they could learn from, they talked about this tool that they had put in place very early in their relationship called veto power. And that veto power was if one of them really felt strongly about something the other one was going to do. They really disagreed strongly and that they talked through it. They tried to find a solution, but they would always have that chance for veto power so that it wouldn't break the friendship. And they said that they used that very, very rarely, but it was something there that they could bring in if they couldn't get through a point of friction. And, you know, for romantic, for business, whatever relationship, it's that point of, okay, if we can't get through this, let's step back and take a pause. And if it's really going to be something that's gonna break the relationship, how can we create a third way? How can we do something different and not go that path? And that was something Bertrand and Andre, the two people who did the solar impulse flight around the world, really talked about a lot is this process of third way solutions. So never feeling like you're in this binary discussion or fight, how do you step away? And they had hundreds of tools on how they turned what they called this, the friction into sparkles. So how do you celebrate friction to turn it into sparkles? And they had hundreds of tools to do that. And have you interviewed anybody whose relationship has ended? I mean, I feel like we, you know, that we need to learn how to stay in relationships. We need to learn how to choose good relationships. And we also need to learn how to end relationships in a, in a, in a proper way, I was mentioning that I, in, in my a previous interview, that I got divorced from my husband and, and I call it the most loving divorce, right? It's a loving separation. And uh, people's eyebrows always, you know, gets raised like, what? How could you get divorced and love, you know? But are there models of how do we actually go about separation in a, in a healthy way? 
Yeah, and a lot of times it's changing the form of the relationship. So it may be that you're in a marriage and you become friends, or you may be business partners and you become friends. So some of the people that I interviewed went that through that transition of a shift in how they labeled their partnership, but the same kind of skills at the center kept them deeply connected. But in saying that, one of the things we did, Zainab, is I interviewed a lot of psychologists and people that work with partnerships to find out what breaks relationships. Because absolutely, you shouldn't stay in a relationship if it's not helping you become your best self and helping you look at how you can do something bigger in the world. If a relationship is actually dragging you down and actually making you the darker side of yourself, then you have to be brave and courageous enough to leave that partnership. And some of the things these psychologists talked about that break relationships, um, one of them, for example, was not having a larger meaning or purpose in life. And that doesn't have to be something something like ending apartheid or closing the ozone hole. It could be just actually nurturing your children to be the best human beings in the world. It, it could be helping your community do something that's important. It could be anything, but having some type of meaning. Um, and then another one was not having a shared set of values or virtues. Um, and if they don't match, that can cause friction and end a relationship. And then an important one that I heard a lot from people is something called an imbalance in commitment. And so you may have one person that's all in and one person that's not. And eventually that will break the relationship because the person that's all in won't feel that commitment from the other person. Whether that's in a romantic or business doesn't really matter, um, but that will eventually potentially break the relationship. And then another one that came out about what breaks relationships is also this idea around a superhero syndrome. So if you have one person relationship that feels like they constantly do, they need to save the day, they need to be the one. And again, we're trained to do that from an early age. Eventually that relationship will probably, they will become so distant because one person feels like they're not part of the bigger picture with that other person, if they're always having to be that superhero. So those were some of the things that came up. And I think we all, you know, one thing I learned through this process is uh, you have to invest significant time if you really want to build a deep connection with someone. And then those deep connections will help you with all your relationships, even if it's just an acquaintance, to be at a deeper level. So it's really carefully selecting who you are going to build those deep connections with in your life. Uh, you know, Richard Reed, one of the co-founders of Innocent Drinks, had this beautiful thing where he said, we are nothing more than the summation of our relationships. So thinking hard about who we really invest that time in. That's beautiful. I mean, it's really, it's, it's taking me back to my own personal story uh, when I was really, really sick and it's all the relationships that surfaced up. And I really, it, it, I noted who came through. And some people I did not even know very well. I mean, it was an acquaintance, let's see, let's say. And whoop came through. And then there are some people who are very close, of course, right? So it's interesting, you know, and since then I have become committed to investing in relationships because I know that we actually... And it's not a transaction, but in our most vulnerable moments, we need relationships, we need communities, we need family and friends around us. And that that investments, you know, they don't just show up, one need to invest in that in these relationships for them to, um, to show up in the proper time, right? I'm curious about, and again, it's both personal as well as on the professional side of relationships, Often, sometimes I do a lot of retreats, Jean. I did a lot of self-development retreats, you know, to work on myself and all of that. And I've noticed enough, including in my own personal relationship, that if I grow alone and that the other person is not in the same growth cycle, it most likely ends the relationship. And it's actually very scary right now when I see couples and one of them is one is interested in working on her or his personal growth and development and the other one saying, I have nothing to do with it. It's, I worry for their marriage. Like, it's like, oh, this is scary territory in here. Have you encountered stories or examples or lessons of how do we manage different interests at this different times, let's say it, and how does that impact the relationship itself? Yeah, and I want to go back to the personal growth thing, too, and how relationships can help us grow. I'll come back to that in a minute. But I think one of the things that was ever present in all these relationships and partners that I researched and explored was this sense of curiosity and wonder, not just in the world, but in each other. And, you know, if someone's on this exploration path and the other person is not supportive and not going on that journey with them, 
then there's, there's going to be a gap and you're going to grow apart. And I think one of the things that I never expected when I started this process was how much emphasis and time people put into what I call magnetic moments. So these rituals, these traditions, these daily practices that keep people connected. And going back to your question about when they're on the spiritual journey of looking inward as well, those magnetic moments brought them together and helped them each understand where they were on this spiritual journey. And, you know, Joe Confino loved to call it, um, love is respecting your partner in the place they're in. And in order to respect your partner in the place they're in and understand that, you have to have these moments where you come together and you pause and you really are curious about one another. You learn about one another. And I think what was interesting for me, Zainab, because the other thing that was a really important thread through all of this is really working on yourself and having peace with yourself. And that has to be a part of this process because you can't show up and be all in with someone else unless you're going through that journey. But you also can't wait for yourself to be perfect because we will never be perfect. None of us will be. And both the relationship side and the personal evolution side are a constant evolution. I think the most important thing is that respect, that trust, that journeying together and never losing that curiosity with each other. And I think one thing I've found in the world sometimes is we spend so much time finding ourselves that sometimes we lose ourselves in our own belly buttons and we forget to lift our heads above that and realize that the relationships and the partnerships that we build around ourselves are also the things that help us find ourselves and help us become the best version of ourselves. And I think that was something I didn't really understand before, you know, and I've watched my partnership with Chris now. He's helped me become far, you know, far better person than I ever could have if I was just journeying on my own. Because he also has the courage to say to me, you know, you're hanging out in a skinny limb there. You got to come back. You know, if I, he has that courage to challenge me. But he also has the beauty and the patience to say, hey, you could, do some, you could do something much bigger than you're doing right now to push me, to challenge me, to become better. So I think that partnership allows us to, again, step into that best version of ourselves. Actually, this is a very important point, especially as, you know, the realm of spiritual work and self-development is increasing and becoming more and more um, of interest to a lot of people. It's um, as how do we not lose ourselves, as you said, in our uh, just that belly glazing in here. It, it reminds me of um, a Sufi uh, story of a guy who was like really dedicated to working on himself. And he was, you know, he took on a cave and meditated in that cave for years and like reached nirvana and he's happy and peaceful and one day two you know two passerbyers basically pass uh, and they said we're like it's at night do you mind if we stay with you at night in the cave just just a sleepover basically until the morning and he's like yeah 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 sure but then they came these strangers and they moved things in the wrong direction and the wrong ways and they behaved there in ways that he's not used to and you know made sound and whatever it is put things in the wrong place right and he was really angry at them. And then by the by the time the daytime came in, he had killed them both. Now it's a story, but the point of the story is: what's the point of being in Nirvana by yourself if you actually do not know the skill sets and do not have the skill sets to? be in relationships with others and not kill them. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's a symbolic story, but I, I actually really associate with it because we, we, we do hijack our own relationships, you know, especially, I would say, particularly probably the romantic ones. We're pushing all constantly to see if they, you know, if they if, if they are the right cavemen <laughs> with us or not, <laughs> right? But it's, it's, it's a very important point, actually. It's, um, but does, do, do the two people have to grow together? You know, and, you know, you're saying they have to they can grow separately as long as they're connecting and creating some connections together. Yeah. And I think two things to that very good question about do they have to grow together? I think the most important thing is that they have that ecosystem of virtues where they trust one another, they respect one another, they have united belief in each other's growth paths, and then they have this sense of generosity and humility and realize that. Their partner may be growing slightly differently, but maybe that's a more interesting path. So I think having that ecosystem is super important. 
But I think the other thing is this sense of making sure that you never lose respect for the other partner and that you never lose curiosity in the other partner. And, you know, one of the interviews that I just adored, because many of them saying, you know, these people were radically different, like total different paths in life. Like I interviewed Cornell West, who is far left social Democrat, and Robert George, who is far right Christian thinker, one of the leading Christian thinkers, very conservative. And, you know, that interview was so beautiful because it showed me that you can have a path of very, you know, very different kind of purposes, goals, but they shared this common set of values and ways of looking at the world. And, you know, one of the two of the things that I'll never forget from that interview is they talked a lot about how when they're in conversation, you know, they will have radically different views, but sometimes they'll just be sitting silently with their heads together because they have such deep respect for one another that they know if that person has that opinion, they need to listen to really understand why they have that opinion. And yes, they won't necessarily change opinions, but they'll understand why at a deeper level. So they said sometimes they'll be sitting there and people will think they're actually in an argument, but they're just listening deeply and intently and then really taking the time to process that so they can understand that difference and not judge that difference. And, you know, when at the very end of their interview, they said something that I found, you know, very simple, but very profound that I think about all the time is they said, go, go out and find a friend that unsettles you. Go out and find a friend that unsettles you. And what I think we do, you know, I love the story you just gave um, from Rumi in the cave, because I think often we miss these massive opportunities to build relationships in our lives that could help us become better people because A, we think they're so different or we have fear of them or we don't give them the time. And I think letting go of that and being open-hearted to every relationship and every person we come in contact with, even if they don't become a deep connection, we can bring that joy to someone's life and learn something from everyone we come into contact with. I mean, this is almost like a fresh nectar in a time of council culture and division and, you know, rupture in, within even families. And it wasn't, you know, only two years ago. It's still, I think it's still continuing of people are really not talking to each other anymore because of political views and values. You use an example, a very severe example, rather. You interviewed a, a guy whose son was killed, only son was killed, and his action was to invite the killer's parents. I mean, that's radical action, right? Can you tell the story of what happened? Why did he decide to reach out to the other side, as Cornell West, as you just, that example you just shared? And what did it lead to? I mean, in the intellectual realms, you know, I can see it's an intellectual stimulating discussion to be in discussion with someone you disagree with and you're tr constantly learning. This father went to his son's killer's family and, and, and wanted to reach out and connect. I'm just fasc fascinated by, the, by that reach and why. Yeah, and this is, this is an amazing story that I quite, I couldn't believe it the first time I heard it. And exactly as you said, Zainab, uh, Azim Kamisa had this son, Tarek, who was about 19 years old. And he was in university delivering pizzas to try to make money. And he went, he got a call, he knocked on several doors. He went back into his car and he was shot by Tony Felix. And uh, it was a part of a gang initiation. And Tony was only 14 years old at the time he shot Tarek. And so Azim, Tarek's father, could have gone into this deep place of bitterness and hatred. And he would have, you know, any one of us would have said he had the right to do that. But instead, what he did is he brought Plez, who was the grandfather of Tony, and his whole family, and Plez was Tony's guardian. He brought them all into, into his home and this very humble home in San Diego that I had the great privilege of, of sitting with Azim and Plez in. And he brought them into the home and Plez, the grandfather, uh, became dear friends with Azim. And they started to build this friendship and they let go of hatred and they let go of bitterness. And they decided that they were going to take this moment of deep tragedy and build a partnership where they stopped kids from killing kids. So they had this deep purpose. And that was some 30 years ago that this started. 
And so I had the privilege of talking to them about their friendship. And, you know, they talk about how they have such a deep connection with one another that it, tra it transcends the emotional. It's gone into the spiritual and that they are like brothers, that they're like one family right now. And they have changed so many young people's lives because you have Azim, who was a uh, investment banker before his son was shot and also a Muslim. You have Plez, who was a Christian and a merchant marine before this tragedy happened. And yet they came together, built this friendship, built a foundation together, and they've changed millions of long, young people's lives by going into these schools where young people can see that these two people from radically different backgrounds, a deep moment of tragedy, have crossed unbelievable divides to become friends for a purpose that is way bigger than them. And, you know, Azim talks a lot about how he realized that this wasn't Tony's fault that he shot Tarek. It was society's fault because we have done this to these young people. We have caused them to be in this place of hatred and fear. And so when Tony, the young man who shot Azim's son, got out of prison just a few years ago, the first thing that Azim did was he hired Tony to work with him in the foundation. And again, unbelievable. And every time I think of or hear of someone that's in a fight or an argument or has a difference of opinion, I think of Plez and Azim. And if they can cross that unbelievable divide and come out with something that changes people's lives for the better, surely we can do that as human beings when we're fighting about politics, when we're fighting about you know, how our children should be educated. Surely we can step back and yes, disagree, but not become disagreeable and filled with fear and hate. How do we transcend that and come to a place of love where we can listen to one another? And yes, not necessarily change our opinions like Pless and, and Azim didn't change their religions out of this. What they, they still held their religious values, but they kept that respect and trust for one another and that sense of generosity. What about the art of listening that all of these relationships that you interviewed have taught you, actually, or, or that you can share with us? Yeah, and thank you for bringing this up because it was one of the most important things and came up in every single interview. And Uzo Oweli, who's the he's the CEO right now, of the Africa Center in New York, was talked about something really profound where he talked about how if you're not listening to someone, you're basically telling them that they don't exist. And you know, two other partners, um, Paul and Jim uh, from IDEO. Paul Bennett from IDEO and Jim Cooper, they talked a lot about when your partner talks, the world stops. And you have to hold that space where the world stops, where you're deeply listening to someone. And, you know, one of the people I love that works on relationships, he's one of the world's biggest relationship experts, John Gottman, talks a lot about it as these almost these reaching out to someone else for a moment of affirmation, so moments of affirmation. And he talks about how in our calls for affirmation. And when people don't respond to one of those calls, it's a sure sign that the relationship may be in trouble. And he said, in good relationships, people respond 85 plus percentage of the time. In a bad relationship, less than 33 some percentage of the time. And because they're not respecting each other and being there for each other in that moment, then they usually drift apart or the relationship potentially will collapse. Very interesting. Very interesting. I wonder if there's a gender dynamic to it. Do men act differently than women in relationships? And and I asked, let me be more specific, actually. I, I noticed that a lot of men in my life, you know, and different, my brothers, siblings, uh, related, friends, uh, romantic, all of that, have a harder time with showing vulnerability in the relationship uh, or asking for help. Or I, I mean, I one dear person to my life, uh, like he has a hard time crying in, in front of his wife because he doesn't want her to think that she is weak or she is, or that he is not strong enough. Do you see a gender dynamics to in, in, in that, in listening? And how does... So that's one question, but then also how do, what's the best way, what's the healthiest way to deal with vulnerability while you are in a relationship? This is something really important. I, when I interviewed these 65 partnerships, men, women, all kinds, they, 
all showed a deep sense of vulnerability. And, you know, in my interview with Ben and Jerry, I've never heard the word love mentioned so much. You know, we don't talk about it usually in a business context, but the whole interview was about love. So my answer to that, Zainab, and again, this is coming from just my experience, but I feel like as human beings, we've pushed so far on hyper-individualism and particularly with men, made them feel like they have to be these superheroes in the world and that they can't be vulnerable. Um, and so I feel like that is something that society has driven rather than something that's inherent as us in, in us as males or females. And I remember, you know, as a female, you know, my first half of my life was in the corporate world, helping start up mobile phone companies, where particularly as a female, I felt like I could not show vulnerability or else it would be a sign of weakness. And I'll never forget a moment where I was kind of dangling at the top of a corporate ladder at a, you know, a CEO in an organization. And um, I had a moment where I burst into tears in front of my board. And I was so devastated because I remember my dad saying, you know, as a female, you can never show tears in a workplace. You have to stay strong. And I was so devastated that I literally drafted my resignation letter. I was ready to go. And I went and talked to the chairman of the board. And I said, I'm so sorry about what happened the other day. You know, I, I, here's my letter of resignation. And he looked at me and he shared the most beautiful, vulnerable story about a moment in his life where he had broken into tears in front of a board. And just that one moment and that one story he shared with me changed my whole world and changed my whole framing and perspective on how I looked at vulnerability in the workplace. Um, so your, my answer to the question, I give that story about myself because I wasn't allowing myself to have vulnerability. And I realized at that moment that it's okay to have vulnerability wherever and whatever situation you are. But I also went through that path of being pushed into hyper-individualism and thinking as a female, I had to be breaking every glass ceiling I could. I had to be right. I couldn't not you know, have the right answer when I was in a situation. So I don't think it's gender-based. I think it's um, training-based of how we educate young people in this world. You know, the story reminds me of um, the movie Arrival. I, it's one of my favorite movies. Uh, and, you know, like at the end of it, I don't know if anybody's seen it, but, you know, the, the thing that changed, the pivotal moment that changed in the movie the world <laughs> or the world's future is a personal story. It's not a political story. It's not a, you know, business story. It's a personal story that touches one person's heart about his intimate life, right? And then it creates all the changes. And so what I'm hearing from you is that we need to bring more that in a constructive way, basically in all our relationships, because you never know what will open up. That chairman opening up to you change perhaps how you carry yourself moving forward. Absolutely. And I, it was really interesting because when I started as part of this, I started to also study these large collaborations, like how is humanity, we protected the ozone layer, how we ended apartheid. And what was really interesting, Zainab, is I knew that all of these were going to be great politics stories, political stories, policy stories. But what was beautiful was the human stories at the center of these. It was these deep friendships that had vulnerability, that had each other's backs, that were never going to give up because they had this beautiful shared mission. And I think, you know, we are in this point in the world right now where we are driven by fear and division. We are so separate from one another. But yet what we need more than ever is the ability to collaborate and to partner to solve our interconnected issues. And I feel like we need this relationship reset. We need to learn how to reconnect with each other, how to be vulnerable with one another, how to hold, you know, we've lost in the Edelman Trust Barometer in 2017. It always sticks in my mind because people fed back that we've, our social values have eroded to the point where we don't trust each other. We're not respectful. You know, we don't have a sense of generosity. And we have to bring those values back into the world. And the only way we're going to do that is by being human ourselves and realizing that we're going to make mistakes along the way and not judging people for those mistakes. That's beautiful. That's truly beautiful. Jean today, as opposed to Jean even 
30 years ago, right? What would you tell your younger self about relationships that you wish you had told? Because you would have spared yourself a lot of agony, maybe, or maybe not. I don't know. What uh, I'm asking this question for me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I. if I look back on a younger gene, I think that a lot of times I was looking at um, relationships on how they would fix me, um, what I could get through those relationships. So I think the first thing I would tell my younger self is look at relationships in your life for what you can bring to the world and others through those relationships rather than what you can get from those relationships. So I think that would be one clear message. I think the other thing, I think, Zainab, one of the things that's driven me in my life is I was so fearful of losing my independence, you know, of being my own person. Of, And, you know, Jacqueline Novogratz, um, the founder of Acumen, and with her partner, Ted, uh, Chris Anderson, the curator, Ted, she's, she had a really beautiful story where she talked about how before they got married, she was petrified of losing her independence. And, you know, he even put a vow that talked about how he would always support her in, in whatever she wanted to do in their, in their wedding. And she talks a lot about how she would tell young people in the world and beseech them to not be fearful of commitment, but to commit to the commitment and realize that that is what will bring you freedom in your life. And so that's another thing I think telling my younger self that it's okay to make a commitment and go all in with people and let yourself have that depth of connection because that's not going to make you lose yourself. It's actually going to make you be the best version of yourself. So that's another thing I would, I would tell my younger self. Um, and I think, you know, another thing from Jacqueline's interview that I just loved is her mom actually had this beautiful question where she talked about in any relationship that you go in, don't ask the question, do they love you enough? Ask the question, are you loving enough? And that simple question in every relationship you're in, whether it's business, romantic, that simple question of are you loving enough helps you change the entire frame, set, frame of your relationships. And I would also just say, go forth with joy and curiosity in every single human being you meet. Um, because that is what you, that's how you're going to learn. That's how you're going to have joy in your own life. And that sense of curiosity and that really that they talked a lot in the interviews about this electric current of difference. Don't be frightened of going out and building relationships with people that are different from you. Celebrate that. And, you know, for me, in the second chapter of my life, the last 18, 20 years, some of the most exciting things that um, have happened to me have been through these partnerships and these relationships that have been with people that have been radically different from me. It's so beautiful, truly beautiful, actually, um, and inspiring, I would have to say. In your work, um, you work in, in all about your, the essence of your work is about collaboration, you know, bringing people together and doing some big things, you know, to help make the better the world a better place what are you most excited about you know what are you you learning not in terms of solution in terms of relation because here's what I find interesting you're in the world of big collaborations with big people in the world and what I love about all this discoveries is that the we're we need to go back to the basics joy love compassion kindness listening, you know, showing up. These are the innate human emotions that we need to relearn, it seems like, you know, because we have forgotten it. And we need to relearn it not only in our personal lives, but also in our professional and political and business lives as well. And that's what, what I'm hearing from you, basically, of all the wisdom of the people that you've interviewed. Yeah, and it's, it's extraordinary to see how these leaders have become who they are. And it's very clear that they've become who they are through the relationships they've surrounded themselves with. And, and that's how they have be, had these outsized legacies of impact. But I think when you're talking, Zainab, one of the things that I was thinking about that was a common thread is this sense of shared humility. And the, the people that I'm seeing in the world right now, and at this, I, I, I should step back for a second because I think we're at a beautiful moment 
where for the first time, I think as human beings, we're starting to realize that the systems we've created are broken and they're no longer serving us. So we, I am so excited about this moment because we have a chance to reimagine and recreate right now. And the people that I'm seeing that are most successful in that process of starting that recreation and reinvention have a, have, you know, a superpower of humility. And they have that shared humility, but they couple that with a united belief. Because I think humility without united belief can actually go nowhere. Um, because then you won't think big enough. You won't go out and really stretch yourself. And then united belief without humility sometimes can go in the wrong direction and nothing will happen. So it's this, it's this beautiful sense of humility that's, that's almost like a, with a sense of understanding who you are, what skills you're bringing to the party and having confidence. So it's also confidence in what you bring to the party, but that humility to know you don't have all the answers and you need lots of other voices and constantly thinking about who is not at the table that needs to have a voice in this mix. And those are the people that I'm seeing are having great success at building these collaborations because they open that space to all kinds of voices. They have the humility to know they don't have the answers, but they have that united belief to have this passion that is so burning inside them that they're never gonna stop. And I feel like we are at extraordinary moment right now where the world is pivoting and starting to move towards this ability to work together and collaborate. I love this. I love because, you know, Desmond Tutu, which is one of the people you interviewed and his wife, an influential figure will stay with us forever, you know, despite his uh, the recent loss uh, of his life, you know, but will stay with us forever. And, you know, when I think of him, let's say, or or even President Jimmy Carter or different people that you've interviewed, their power comes grounded in humility right they like it's 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 sort of comes together it's not either or and it's so beautiful to be reminded of that that the true power is founded in humility and in you know and in partnerships and again in the joy and the love and all of that but i love love, love and i think it's so important that we all remember that that we cannot have power without humility Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it becomes an informed confidence. Yeah. It becomes yeah. a confidence in what you know you can bring, but also you knowing that you don't have all the answers. And, you know, it's one of the things after Mandela died, um, I had the great opportunity to go to South Africa and celebrate his life. And it was a moment that changed my lens on how apartheid ended forever because we were in this tiny, white tent, there was hundreds of us packed in there, you know, pouring rain. So we were soaking wet all the way through. But there was this unbelievable electric current of joy in this tent. And, you know, one after the other, these anti-apartheid heroes got up on this small rickety stage to talk about this great man. And what was beautiful is what they were saying, including Archbishop Tutu and his flowing purple robes. But what was more interesting to me was how they treated each other when they came off the stage and that love and that depth of connection. And so I turned to my right and asked one of the women who was one of the family members of these great anti-apartheid heroes, how do they have such love and deep connection for each other after weathering apartheid? And she said two things. She said, one is they had this unbelievable intoxicating purpose that they were never gonna stop until they ended apartheid. But she said, second, any one of them could have been Mandela but they each came and decided they would play the role that was most important to the collective where they brought their skills. So it was just to me this light bulb moment of the sense of humility that all of these people had in working together. And, you know, Mandela was unbelievable and unstoppable in communicating that intoxicating purpose to the world. But you had others like Walter Sisulu, who was a planner, Albertina Sisulu, who was mobilizing women. Everyone played their role. And they had that humility to understand that they were bringing specific skills to the overall collective. And, you know, uh, DRK, the Bill Draper, the founder of DRK, talked about it like playing as a symphony and taking out the pieces that make you competitive with one another so that all you're competing on is how you can make a material difference to other people's lives. And so I think as we build these collectives, having that as a framing, how do we take out those moments that will have each other competing and instead compete for how we can make a bigger difference in people's lives. That's gorgeous. 
Beautiful. Now to do that, Jane, it requires discipline. And I'm going to ask you some rapid questions about your own rituals to stay in discipline or to stay on track, let's say, for yourself and for the relationships in your life. One is, what's um, your favorite book, a book that you constantly go to for its wisdom? Yeah, I think one of my favorite books is Humankind by Rutger Bregman. Um, that brings us back to, you know, I think we've created this myth that humanity is selfish and greedy. And scientifically, he takes um, each moment and refutes them and shows that we're actually built for this kindness and for this love. So I think that's one that I hold in my heart constantly right now. And also the overstory by Richard Powers, which is just this beautiful story, fictional story, but a reminder how connected we are to nature. And that's something to me that is uh, one of the ways that I stay in flow and my relationship stay in flow is that deep connection to nature. A piece of music or a song or anything musical that you often listen to to lift your spirit or in a melancholy day. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I am the ma a massive fan of Peter Gabriel. And so all his music brings me like, whether that's Pico to remind us of the sense of purpose, or whether that's In Your Eyes to remind us of our connection with one another, I constantly go back to his music. And it, it's something that just really grounds me in my life. I have to say, Peter Gabriel's music and these particular two songs are my bike ride uh, music. That's how it inspires me to keep on going and riding <laughs> the hills near my home. A piece of poetry that has touched you or a poet, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, I, I love Young Pueblo, as I mentioned, and um, I hope I'm saying his name right, Young Pueblo. I just have really, I think his honesty, his transparency, his beauty and depth is, is something I've loved. I also, like you, I love Rumi. Um, I'll go back to Rumi. He, Rumi is a poet that makes me think differently. Um, he challenges the way I think. Um, so I love, I love reading his poems and his poetry. And Janine Banyas, who's not a poet, but she started... Um, she's really the, the, I call her the godmother of biomimicry. And I love reading her works because even though she's not officially a poet, her books are like poetry. And her books make us rethink how we think about nature and reconnect with nature in beautiful and, and respect nature at a deep level. Oh, beautiful, beautiful. And last but not least, a movie that you constantly go to. One that I'm going to right now, because I think it's so relevant to where we are in the world, is Don't Look Up. And I think that that has just such a powerful message to how hypocritical we can be as human beings um, and shifting our thinking. And I also feel one of the things that's the backbone of the book is the story around the ozone community. That is such a beautiful, humble community that came really to save all of our lives. And so it's almost like the antithesis of what happened in Don't Look Up. So that film right now is an important reminder to me about how important collaboration is in the world. That was Jean Owing, her new book, Partnering, Forge the Deep Connections That Make Great Things Happen, is available everywhere books are sold. For full transcripts of this episode, please visit www.findcenter.com. You can follow Find Center on Instagram at find underscore center and follow me at Zainab Selvi. And please do subscribe to this podcast. It is free. And all I ask of you is your subscription and maybe your reviews. Redefine is produced by me, Zainab Selby, along with Rob Carso, Casey Khan, and Howie Khan at Freetime Media. Our music is by John Palmer. Special thanks to Sophie Lulin, Neil Goldman, Kellen Pincus, and Shira Johnston. See you next week when I'll be joined by Kennedy Odeda to talk about finding hope in the midst of the abyss.